listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Justin Reamer. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Erin Osman to read from her new book in the 33 and a Third series on the self-titled 1971 debut album from John Prine, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. The book also offers a lot of interesting stories about the late, great John Prine, who passed away in 2020. After the reading... She'll talk more about the book with Steve Hyden. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about both of our guests today, but first I wanna remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing in Los Feliz from 10 to 10 every day, and you can always shop online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Erin Osman is a Midwest native and veteran of Chicago newsrooms whose music journalism and criticism appears in Uncut, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, New York Times, The Guardian, Washington Post, No Depression, Billboard, and other publications. Her debut book, Jason Molino, Writing with the Ghost, was named a Best Music Book of 2017 by Pitchfork. She is also the author of long-form album notes for box set reissues by bands such as Blondie and Husker Du. She teaches at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School. Stephen Hyden is the author of four books about music and culture, including This Isn't Happening, Twilight of the Gods, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and with Steve Gorman, Hard to Handle. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Billboard, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Grantland, and The Ringer. He is currently the cultural critic at Uproxx. In 2021, he was the consulting producer of Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, after creating, writing, and hosting the acclaimed 2019 podcast, Break Stuff the story of Woodstock 99 for The Ringer and Luminary. Thank you both so much for being here. I'm excited to hear you talk about this book. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it too. So should I read first, Steve? Is that how you want to do it, you think? Yeah, whatever you want to do. Okay. All right, I'll read first and then we can have a chat. All right. Um, so this is chapter six of the book and it's called and then he has you. The story of Prine's first nightclub performance and subsequent discovery has been recounted so many times that it seems apocryphal, a plot point whose details have been softened and molded into an enticing soundbite. As with many oral traditions, it's difficult to tell the difference between the truth and the tale, but music's best storyteller was in fact launched by this great story a mirror between life and art whose poetic underpinnings are a perfect reflection of Prine's inimitable work. 
And it all happened one warm summer night in 1970 at a little Chicago folk music club when John Prine was just 23 years old. As Prine told it, he was one of, a, one of a handful of guitar students in the audience at the fifth peg one night after class, gvetching over a couple of beers. Quote, I made a remark about the people who were getting up to sing. This is awful, he said. So the people I was sitting with said, you, try, you get up and try, and I did. But Ray Tate, his guitar teacher at the Old Town School of Folk Music, remembered it differently. He recalled that Prime came into the club one night when the house and the open mic schedule was packed. Quote, he waited around for a while and he wasn't too happy about it, Tate said. Unable to put him up, Tate invited Prime to come back the following week and he promised to give him a spot on the stage. Quote, I felt terrible having to send him home without putting him on the stage, he said. When Prime returned, he didn't have to wait too long. This is where Prime and Tate's memories converge. After performing Sam Stone, which was then titled Great Society Conflict Veter Veterans Blues, the audience of about 10 or so fell mute. It was the kind of awkward silence that, that makes seconds feel like centuries. I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble, Prime said. But then the entire room, including Prime's teacher, erupted in applause, unsure what they just witnessed, but confident it was important. Quote, I was really impressed by how beautiful the songs were, how well-written and clever, Tate said. Prine also performed Paradise and Old People, which was later titled Hello in There, shaky but determined to get through it. Whether Prine reluctantly took the stage or, as Tate remembered, vied for a spot, one thing is certain, he was nervous. John and his brother Dave had performed covers at the dedication of the Fred Hampton Pool during the 1969 Maywood Folk Festival, a short-lived suburban fete founded by a neighborhood friend. Quote, we were the only white folks there, Dave recalled. Prine had given plenty of living room performances, but he hadn't tested any of his original songs on a live audience that wasn't his family. Quote, I was writing these songs totally for myself, not thinking anyone was ever gonna hear them, Prine said. And I went from that to being a very nervous public performer who had no voice whatsoever. To sing for other people was really painful. Prine explained that in his earliest days, he spoke the words to his songs fast or slow, depending on the melody, and held certain notes to let the audience know he was transitioning to a new idea. Quote, that's how limited I was, he said. Eventually, he settled into a nasal, twang-infused delivery that would elicit a million comparisons to Bob Dylan. But for now, he was a mailman at the crossroads of a curious proposition. According to Prine, someone who worked at the club offered him a regular gig on the spot, but that may be a bit an exaggeration. The offer may have come after a few open, open mic gigs, as others have remembered. What's certain is the popularity of his appearances happened with unbelievable speed. Prine began playing Sunday nights, earning half of the door, in, July, in June and July of 1970. He was then promoted to Friday and Saturday nights in the fall. Quote, when they started charging people to get in, we would get, we would get a cut of that, his first wife, Anne Carol Menelaskino, recalled. Quote, so I would stand by the door and collect something like $2.50 from each person. Ed Holstein, who worked at the Old Town School store across the street, had also become a part-time bartender at the Fifth Peg and took in one of Prine's earliest performances, wandering in on a, a night off from work. Quote, he played Illegal Smile, Paradise, Hello in There, and Sam Stone, and it was pretty amazing. The songs were so powerful. I knew right away that something was going on, he said. I immediately told my brother Fred, and I told Steve Goodman about him. 
As momentum began to build, Prine worried that he didn't have enough songs, that a set was becoming redundant for repeat patrons. So he wrote the song Souvenirs, which is included on his second album, Diamonds in the Rough, in a 65 Chevelle while driving to the fifth peg. Prine explained that he set out to write the most sophisticated melody he could muster, and it is more complex than songs that comprise John Prine, twinkling like a constellation. Quote, I thought I'd written a jazz melody, he explained. I was surprised to find out it had the same three chords all my other songs have. <laughs> its imagery and emotion originates from a carnival Prine attended with his brothers when they were young. Amid the festivities, his older brother Dave wandered off, and Prine was convinced he'd never find him again, an unprecedented, overwhelming fear that burned in his memory. Quote, I kept that emotion buried somewhere, and it came out in souvenirs, he said. Prine also recalled the image of Dave after they reunited, holding small plastic horses, souvenirs from the carnival, but also of Prine's memory, a crystallized moment of relief. As the months wore on, more and more faces from the Chicago folk scene wandered in to catch Prime on word of mouth recommendation. Steve Goodman came in a couple of times, first with the Holstein brothers, Fred and Ed, and later with the rising local singer, singer Bonnie Kolak, whose glassy voice was the perfect instrument for bare folk songs, but dynamic enough for jazz sophistication and emotive blues, which she often incorporated in her sets. She'd come to Chicago from Iowa in late 1968, hoping to break into the thriving Northside club scene, and almost immediately landed a gig as a house performer at the Quiet Night. Quote, the first time I saw John play, I walked up to him and I said, you're, you don't have to worry about a thing because your gift will carry you through, Kolak recalled. He had this wry way and this interesting way of looking at the world and could project that in his writing. He had no pretense. Prine and the Holsteins became buddies jamming together in the brothers' apartments or commiserating over beers. Fred was older, a scholar of folk music, and Ed shared in Prine's love of a good hard laugh. Both brothers worked at the Old Town School store selling strings and other accoutrements. Quote, Eddie and me, we used to go to lunch together because I used to like to watch Eddie eat, Prine said. He'd eat for hours, and he was just a little skinny guy then, and he'd wonder where the food was. Fred Holstein was one of the few people Prine knew who had a reel-to-reel -reel recorder, and he'd track demos for Prine after he'd written a song. Quote, he'd bring it over and then Fred would do it that night, Ed said. People wanted to do Prine songs right away. One day, Ed shared a couple of melodies he'd written and asked Prine if he had any lyrics, thinking they could come up with a co-write. Quote, he had one verse, I am an old woman. And I was looking for something a little bit more like there's a hole in daddy's arm, he said. That one verse would soon, soon became one of Prine's most beloved songs, Angel from Montgomery, but Holstein just couldn't see it at the time. Quote, it just didn't move me, he said. It became a much better song later. Though Ed turned down Prine's idea of a middle-aged woman who feels older than she is, a rejection that would haunt him the rest of his life, it stuck with Prine. And so he finished Angel from Montgomery soon after their exchange in 1970. Prine believed the setting was inspired by Hank Williams, Montgomery, Alabama is where the country icon's career began and where it ended when he was laid to rest. Holstein has posited that it was drawn from the spirit of progress, a bronze statue of an angelic woman on top of the former Montgomery Ward headquarters on Chicago Avenue. Either way, the image Prime conjured when writing it was salient. Quote, I had this really vivid picture of this woman standing over the dishwater, dishwater with soap on her hands and just walking away from it all, Prine said. So I just kept that whole image in my mind when I was writing the song and I just let it pour out of that character's heart. Another example of Prine's innate ability to write empathetic, character-driven lyrics illuminating overlooked pro pop 
portions of American society. The song is also an early example of Prine's tacit feminism. Rather than talk over the woman, he allowed her to speak for herself, revealing the depths of her dissatisfaction and longing, rather than funneling her feelings through a man's third-party narration. Two years later, Bonnie Kolak cut an excellent full band country rock version of Angel from Montgomery that's less funereal, funereal than Prine's for the small but mighty Chicago independent label Oration Records. It cemented a fondness between the two musicians that survived well into their golden years. This was before Bonnie Raitt's cover from Streetlights, which helped propel Prine onto the national stage. Quote, with Prine, we felt this realness, this depth of a person, Kolak said. That was hardly common. He connected with our humanity, with how people feel. Not everybody can write those lyrics. The first week in October 1970, Roger Ebert, the film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times, wandered into the fifth peg during one of Prine's sets after walking out of a particularly rotten film. Ebert had been with the paper for three years and was a familiar face in Old Town where he downed beer and shot specials among friends new and old at a works pub, the Old Town Ale House, and the Earl of Old Town. Quote, Old Town and Lincoln Avenue in the 1960s and 70s were where Chicago went to be young, to drink and sing all night, to live forever, Ebert said. It's not a stretch to imagine that Ebert might have heard of the buzz surrounding a new song songwriter performing a mile from his Old Town stomping grounds, but Ebert attributed the encounter to, quote, sheer blind luck. Music wasn't his beat, but after witnessing Prime's performance, Ebert was moved enough to share news of a remarkable local talent. Great minds recognize each other with particular acuity. That Friday, October 9th, the Sun-Times ran Prine's first review, written by the young film critic. Quote, he appears on stage with such modesty, he almost seems to be backing into the spotlight, Ebert wrote. He sings rather quietly and his guitar work is good, but he doesn't show off. He starts slow. But after a song or two, even the drunks in the room begin to listen to his lyrics. And then he has you. Ebert's article blew the door wide open and Prine went from being celebrated by scenesters to being the talk of suburbanites. Those who'd never set foot in a folk music club soon angled for a spot at the feet of the singing mailman. Quote, after Roger's piece, things changed, Prine said. He wrote that in place of his weekly movie review and everybody would turn to the last page to see what the movie was. He was recognized by this time as a Chicago writer and I was a Chicago kid. And the combination there got the people of Chicago interested to come see this kid. The following night after Ebert's review was Prime's 24th birthday. He had a gig at the fifth peg, so Anne Carroll loaded an oversized sheet cake into the trunk of their Chevelle and surprised him with it at the club. Prime became so popular that a fan even made him a large quilted banner that listed favorite songs, Donald and Lydia, Blue Umbrella, Hello in There, Old People, and Unwitting Redundancy, Quiet Man, and Sam Stone, with Prime's name spelled incorrectly in the middle, John P-R-Y-N-E. <laughs> we hung it in our apartment for years, Anne Carroll remembered. Overnight, Prine was no longer a neophyte, no, no longer a mere postal carrier. Like Ebert and Studs Terkel and Carl Sandburg, Nelson Algren and Gwendolyn Brooks, he had become an emblem, a living embodiment of Chicago's low-key brilliance, a friend relaying his most pressing thoughts with unfussy poetic clarity. Like these writers, he was a clarion voice of the everyman, a populist poet, a son of the second city born of its confines and built by its people. The Chicago issues a particular test of endurance. It will bury you in parking tickets, then bury you in snow, and then drink you under the table. It also pledges its allegiance, its brotherhood, to its true blue hearts, 
Prine's Midwestern parlance was unpretentious, astute, and heartrending, and with it, he won over the city. Prine took a gamble on Chicago's promise. Soon after Ebert's review, he quit his job with the USPS. Quote, I made $2.18 an hour at the post office, and they didn't pay overtime, and they worked as 12 hours a day, Prine said. When I left, the postmaster told me not to take my retirement because I'd be back. I told him, you don't get it. Even if the singing thing doesn't work out, I ain't never coming back. Most people would have kept both jobs and doubled their money, but I just quit and slept all week. <laughs> as much as Prine insisted that music was a hobby in those days, that he never expected to make it a career, this cavalier move suggests otherwise. As reluctant or uncertain as he might have felt, or thought he felt, or told people he felt, no card-carrying Midwesterner leaves a steady job with a pension without confidence in what comes next. In the wake of Ebert's Inc., Chicago had a new poet laureate. His name was John Prine. You know, when I read that chapter, uh, and I hope you're, you'll be pleased to hear this, I, I immediately put on Bonnie Raitt's Streetlights album, and I listened to that as I read the rest of the book. So it's like a good, it's like a good offshoot from talking about John Prine. It'll yeah. also get you, get you to listen to Bonnie Raitt yes. uh, reading this book. Um, I told you this before we recorded, but I'll just say it for the record so everyone can hear it. I this is I really like this book. I think he did such a great job, such a lovely read. It's beautiful writing. And I was impressed by how you were able to cover so much ground in the concise three, 33 and a half format. Like it's only about 120 pages, I think, or so, but it feels like a longer book because you're not only talking about John Prine, you're talking about Chicago, you're talking about Kentucky, folk music. You know, you learn a lot about the context of John Prine from reading this book. So very good job. Just want to congratulate you on writing this book. Gosh, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you so uh, much. Oh, I've uh, long admired your work and um, I just really appreciate the sentiment. Well, that's the, the I appreciate that. Uh, the, we're just complimenting each other. This is great. Um, I wanted to start like with a two-part question for you yeah. because, well, first of all, I was wondering if you started this book before John Prine passed or after, and if John Prine were still with us, do you think your book would be different? Just because I know for me as a reader, it was a melancholy experience reading this book because he, he passed on last year. I'm just wondering like, what was your experience as a writer with that? Yeah, I, I've always wanted to write at length about um, John and particularly as it relates to his roots in the Midwest and, and Chicago, because I lived in Chicago for 15 years and I stand for that city really hard. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's long been a dream of mine um, to write at length about him and this album and that particular time and place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have done it with him with us because to have his original voice, I mean, he was the king of the quote right? Like he could just issue these one-liners and these profound little nuggets with like seemingly little to no effort, right? Like yeah. I would love to have his original voice woven in there. But fortunately he gave so many great interviews um, in the past that I was able to mine from that I feel like, you know, it's not exactly the same, but I, I did my best to try to represent his voice as accurately and as like colorfully as I could. 
as I could. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the Steve, cause we're both from the Midwest, but like, if you're from the Midwest, there are to my mind, like four songwriters that are sort of like <laughs> Titans from the Midwest. And that's Bob Dylan, yeah. John Mellencamp, Prince and John Prime. Right. Like there are other like more contemporary people that we can talk about. But if we're thinking of like the big four, like that's what I think of. I don't I don't know if you feel that way. I would squeeze Paul Westerberg in there. Yes. Uh, maybe because I'm a I'm I'm in, I'm in the upper Midwest and yes. uh, I'm in Minneapolis, too. But um, but yeah, those are definitely the big ones. Yeah. Uh, and you're from uh, Indiana. So that's your shout out, John Mellencamp. Yes. <laughs> As an Indiana native. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Um, but like, you know, these four guys and arguably Westerberg too, um, you can't like avoid them if you're from the Midwest. Like your parents have the records, your grandparents have the records, they're on local radio stations, they play in diners, they have streets named after them, right? Like they're stitched into the cultural fabric in like such this impenetrable way. Yeah. Um, and and just for me of those like big four or five, Prime was like the goat in my family, right? Like my dad's a huge insatiable Prime head. Um, and, and my dad's family is spread across Western Kentucky. So like I grew up in Indiana, but spent a lot of time going to Western Kentucky, just like the Primes. Um, and so I just really related to the story on a human level. Um, but also like an artistic level, because I mean, he's, he's a genius, like no one can touch him. Um, so I think those two things really made me want to, to do this book. It, it, it's uh, funny that you mentioned how your dad love John Prine and because I feel like Prine as much as anyone is the person you get into because some you heard someone playing it in your house like maybe you're in the backseat of the car or something on a trip or uh for me I uh I accidentally got a John Prine tape from my friend because he dubbed you know probably like a Soundgarden album on one side of a cassette tape and on the other side it was Sweet Revenge which oh, wow. is the, the, I think that's the third John Prine record. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk, though, about how were you introduced to John Prine and what exactly was it about him that uh, struck a chord with you? Yeah, I, I think so. I was introduced to him through my dad. Um, my dad played the self-titled record like ad nauseum in the family minivan. Right. Like um, it was it was that and, and Tom Petty, like on repeat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, like my dad's family, they're all in like Hopkins County and Caldwell County and Western Kentucky. And so when we would go down there, um, they were all musicians, not all of them, but I mean, a lot of them were singers and pickers and musicians and they would play Prime's music. Like, and these are God fearing Southern Baptist people who didn't listen to a lot of secular music. Um, so it was just really cool that they, that it resonated with them that it resonated with us, like kind of quote city slickers in Indiana. You know, I'm from Evansville, which is technically a city. Um, so it really is this through line in this family tradition um, that I think it just appeals to a, such a wide swath of middle Americans, right? Like we hear ourselves in these lyrics and it amplifies our voices and our stories in this way that I hadn't really heard before or like considered before, right? Like yeah. when I listen to Prime, I hear my dad and his family. Right. Um, I think that's important, you know? And that's something you write about really well in your book about how Prine would write about people that uh, were not normally written about in songs. So you're writing about sort of invisible people and you actually talk about 
the community that he came from and how that informed a lot of those songs. I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit and like, why was that important for you uh, to explore in the book? Because it's not just the music book. I mean, you're, you're talking about like different Chicago neighborhoods and how they developed over the decades. Uh, you really get deep into that. And I was wondering why, why was that important for you to explore and how do you feel like that influenced him as an artist? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, I, I love Chicago, first of all, um, but, you know, John's older brother, Dave Prine, was, got really swept up in the folk music revival in Chicago. And Chicago was a center of that scene. Like, I don't know if people necessarily think of it that way, but like the stuff that was happening in San Francisco and Greenwich Village was also happening in Chicago. Um, it was a big touring stop because there was a huge um, infrastructure of nightclubs that people could play in. Um, so it was as big in Chicago as it was on the coast. Um, and so I, it felt important to me to sort of illuminate that and to illuminate like Dave's enthusiasm and participation that he passed on to his little brother, you know, um, which I think is really cool. You know, he had this kind of like fatherly role sort of in, in Prime's life. They, they're kind of far apart in age. Um, so, so yeah, I think that was important. Um, and I think without that, um, enthusiasm for folk music in Chicago and without Dave getting swept up in that, I'm not sure if John would have been, you know, introduced to music or would have had like, um, sort of the drive or even a place to learn like he did. Um, I love the old town school of folk music. It's arguably like the preeminent folk music school in the country. Um, it, is so great and so welcoming to the community. I mean, really you can walk in there and, and learn to kind of pick a few songs and feel completely unintimidated. And I think, you know, that's how Dave learned and that's how John learned in those settings, right? In the, that kind of informal um, playing by ear sort of setting that they um, uh, teach. And um, that was important, I think too, to sort of spotlight that. I'm not sure how often um, that school is talked about, but it's still, it's still running today. Um, and, and so, yeah, like when I thought about writing this book and writing about the record, it really became, um, a book about prime, but a book about, um, place too, time and place, because this record is such a product of like a series of amazing coincidences, like amazing kind of events that happened, but also this really thriving scene that isn't talked a lot about anymore in Chicago. Um, and it right. gave me the opportunity to talk about his friends and the club owners and all of the people that incubated him and sort of um, took a chance on him early on. Um, and it's totally essential to the making of the record. It seems like too that like Midwestern identity is a major theme in this book. And you touched on a little bit in the excerpt that you read and even in some things that you've said during our talk here. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that because it feels like that's something that's important to you as well as the author. And but to what degree do you feel like Prine himself was self-aware about that? That do you feel like he was consciously writing songs about people that weren't showing up in other people's songs and that was something that was important to him? I mean, maybe, yeah. I think in a way it was sort of like de facto, right? Because he mined from his everyday experiences. Um, so I don't know if it was a conscious thing, like, um, you know, I, I'm I'm doing this as some sort of protest. Um, I think, you know, he just mined from his everyday existence, which is like 
pretty cool because his everyday existence is not talked about a lot, you know, like um, that sort of um, that just like the shining details and like the pedestrian details that he's able to elevate in such a profound way. Um, you can tell he was like a, just a keen observer of everything going on around him. Um, so maybe it's just happenstance. Like maybe it just happened that he wrote from his life and he happened to live in Maywood, Illinois, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but, but yeah. it is, um, you know, one thing that I think is important to note is like, um, Chicago is so proud of its sons and daughters, right? Like, um, you know, I think there's this whole like flyover country mentality that can happen about the yeah. middle, middle of the country. And, and so therefore Chicago sort of has this, um, maybe even contrarian sort of attitude, like, okay, well, you're going to underestimate us. Um, we're going to create superstars and we're going to celebrate them and, and hold on to them and sort of lift them up um, in our own way. Like it's very much a city of itself. Like it, it loves what it makes. Um, it, it supports its own. Um, and I've never seen the amount of local enthusiasm for things as I have in Chicago. Um, and so, yeah, I really wanted to capture that as well. I remember I, I had the chance to interview him on for his last record, uh, The Tree of Forgiveness. So I think that would have been 2019 or so. And one thing I, because eventually we started talking about the self-titled album and you talk about this in your book too, that I was always, I always thought it was funny that he's sitting on a bale of hay on the cover of the record because there's not a lot of hay in Chicago that I'm aware of. Um, and and, and he had a laugh about that when I asked him about it, because I think he was befuddled. It wasn't his idea that 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 they presented him that way. But there's something about that that to me sort of encapsulates like how like, like a New York City record label would see someone from Chicago. Like we'll put him on a bale of hay, <laughs> you know, because he's just like some hick or something. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? I, and so there's almost like a little unintentional joke with that on, on the cover of that record. I guess I'm curious, like, like for your feelings about that, because you said that you wanted to write about this for a long time, this album. And I'm just wondering, like, like what did this album communicate to you as a listener? Like, it, it, like as far as that goes, like Midwestern identity or, or just in any other respect? Yeah, I mean, I think it communicated a couple of things. Um, one thing is that it communicated the power of simplicity, right? Like, I mean, you and I are both writers. We know that if something seems simple, that it's probably really hard to pull off, right? Like, we know that. Um, but Prime is such a master at that. And I, I think that it's so profound because he didn't try to, like, make things fancy, right? Or maybe, maybe he did. Like, maybe he thought you know, oh, I'm going to play five chords instead of three, <laughs> you know, um, but he really conveyed the power of simplicity and accessibility, right? Like his music, um, anyone can listen to it and understand it and be moved by it in some way. Um, so he didn't really like try to alienate anyone. He just um, sort of who, was who he was. Um, and I think that in, uh, welcomed a lot of people into his circle, right? So I think that's super important. And the other thing I think it did um, that was so important to me was it like, it gave me this sense that like my people matter, you know? Um, right. So there's the amazing, incredible writing, right? That's like deceptively simple, 
But then there's also the pride, the like, oh, wow, like my people can be on Atlantic Records. That's amazing, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing with pride too, I was thinking about this as I was reading your book, that if you think of a lot of the great songwriters that are in the canon, whether it's Dylan or Joni Mitchell or Leonard Cohen, there's always a sense of remove and glamour to those people that John Prine never had and never cultivated. You know, like he like he was not this enigmatic, you know, genius that you hold on a pedestal like a lot of those other people. I mean, just his origin story, being the, a mailman. Uh, and in that chapter that you read too, I was really struck by how awkward he was on stage initially because if you saw him later or you listened to his live albums, he seems so casual. He's telling great stories between songs. So that was a surprise to me as well. But I mean, does that make sense to you? I mean, just like his, his everyman persona seemed totally authentic. You're right. I mean, Prime was never kind of out to pull one over on the listener, right? He, there was no like this kind of like poet jester kind of Dylan thing going on at all. Um, and he wasn't trying to be sophisticated. He wasn't trying to be fancy or even experimental, really. Like he didn't have those modes. I mean, he literally just was who he was. And I, I love that about him and this record in particular, but like his entire body of work, you know, and that's why like so many people in Nashville felt like they knew him because he was the guy shooting pool at the pool hall down the street, you know, like that never mm-hmm. left him. And I don't think it wanted to, I don't think he wanted it to, right? Like, um, I, I love hearing stories. This didn't make it into the book, but like Chicagoans will tell stories about how like they saw Prime picking up his aunt and limo to take his aunt to the show, which is like such a Midwestern person who's recently come into a little money, like something yeah. that they would do. But I just think that's so charming. Um, and that's probably like the fanciest thing he ever did was like buy some Cadillacs and take his aunt out in a limo, you know? Um, and and I love that because it's so on brand. <laughs> the other thing I, I, I love about that chapter that you read is, you know, that, that detail about how he felt like he didn't have enough songs, so he just wrote souvenirs. You know, like, well, I need another song, so I'm going to write souvenirs, which is this, <laughs> like, amazing song. It's not like some throwaway tune, you know, it's like one of the best songs of that era. I mean, I'm, I'm also struck, too, that self-titled record um, is like a greatest hits album, too. Yes. And he has great albums after that, but that really is the record that you want to play for someone who's never heard John Prine. It's just amazing that that's his debut. Yeah. I mean, there's not a miss on that album, really. I mean, I think people may say things about like the production or the instrumentation, but like the strength of the songs themselves and all of those lyrics, it's incredible. And he was writing that stuff when he was like 19, 20 years old. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's so, it's so good, but you're right. Um, That's another reason I think maybe I wanted to write about this, book in particular is because when you listen to the record, it's a good entry point, right? And it like gets you excited to want to explore the rest of the catalog. Um, I mean, and that's how it was for me. That's the record I heard first. Um, And I think it's a lot of people's favorite and it has all of the um, songs that are like standards now, you know, like Paradise and and Angel Montgomery and, you know, a lot of those songs. Is there a song on the record that is a little bit ahead of the other ones for you? Like, is there like a number one song for you on this record? Um, 
gosh, far from me, I think. Oh. Uh, yeah. Like I a relative it. deep cut. Yeah. Yeah. I just, um, there's a timelessness to that song that I think is, and, and just a poignancy. And I like to get sad. <laughs> like, I'm, I can be kind of a sad sack. So um, I just love uh, the poignant nature of that song. And like, it's such a like classic country song in a way. Like, I think any, you know, like George Jones or Merle Haggard or anyone could sing that song. You know, anyone in Nashville can sing that song. And I think it sort of transcends like genre and time and place and scene in a way that I think is really beautiful. I'm still blown away that a guy that young wrote a song so insightful about old people, like Hello in there. You know, I, I mean, guys in their early 20s are not the most empathetic people in the world. Okay. Uh, so for him to be able to do that, I, I, I mean, a person of any age writing that song, I think it would be an achievement for someone so young to even think that that would be a topic worth writing about. Um, I think just says so much about his empathy for mm -hmm. people. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, a part of it is like he lived with his paternal grandparents for a while. Like they were all living in that home in Maywood, like when Brian was young. And then he spent a lot of time um, with his extended family in Kentucky and a lot of those folks were older, right? And then he had this like newspaper route as a boy where he delivered papers to um, a retirement home in, in uh, Maywood. And so I think like the those kind of three prongs um, made him have like, like really deep reverence and empathy for older people. Um, and I think Prine just loved people in general. Um, even if he wasn't the most outgoing guy, I think he loved like observing and recording all kinds of different people. Um, and that's very much a Chicago thing too, because it's such a diverse city. So it's interesting to note that like he grew up around all different kinds of folks. You know, it's not like you know, it's not live in the country where you kind of have like one mode, like he grew up around black populations and Latinx populations and rich people and poor people. I mean, it was just like, I think it was, um, he was like a kid in a candy store, you know, watching all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Um, so this is the second book you've written about a uh, singer songwriter from the Midwest. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm curious, you know, do you see any uh, parallels between Jason Molina and John Prine. Mm, I've really backed myself into a corner. <laughs> I need to go in a different direction. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, they both kind of wore their roots as a badge of honor, right? Like they were both kind of from these places that are overlooked and sort of underestimated, I think. Um, and that that's a big thing. And for both of the books, it's very much a, a biography, but also a story of place and time. Um, so that's definitely a thread between the two of them. They were both kind of blue collar. Um, you know, they both had families who worked, you know, regular jobs. Um, they come from humble backgrounds, um, but they were also both very um, profoundly simple too, I think. You know, um, Jason Molina and John Prine, um, they don't have the same sentiment, right? Like um, there's a lot more humor in Prine's work in Jason's, yeah. although Jason was hilarious as a person. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they both kind of carry that common thread of like profound simplicity that's really difficult to pull off. Yeah. So as we're getting ready to wrap up here, I'm, I'm, for those people that maybe have never heard John Prime, so they're unsure whether they want to read your book, I would say read your book and you'll become a fan of John Prime. But uh, in terms of John, just as an artist, like 
why should people check him out if they haven't yet already? Because every songwriter that you know and love today was inspired by John Prime. Like, it's a universal truth. You, you won't listen to any modern songwriter who doesn't love John Prime. Um, and so I think it's important to interrogate um, kind of those roots, right? And, 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 and once you do interrogate those roots, you're gonna fall in love with this music. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, my son walked in as you were talking. That's why I was waving my my hand. It's okay. You can cut that part out of this uh, show. Um, well, Aaron, uh, again, lovely book, such good writing, a lot of good reporting. I think if you love John Prine, you're going to love this book. If you don't know much about John Prine, you can dig into this book and learn a lot. And I think you'll become a fan. So again, congratulations on the book. Good luck with it. Uh, and yeah, great job. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. And thank you both. Thanks again to Aaron Osman for sharing your work with us today. Thank you to Stephen Hyden for curating such a thoughtful conversation. Of course, you can order your very own copy of the 33 and a third on John Prine at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And we hope to see you again soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.